The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. All right. Are you going to help me? What? You're going to help me? Like j- jump in? Yeah, jump in, please. The way we rehearsed before the show? Something like that okay, would okay. be good. Or, or even more. Would okay, be nice. you start. Oh. You start. Okay. I, I'll, I'll, I'll see will. what I can right. do. Okay. Ready for this? Area. There are days in this life This sun shining bright when we see what God intended But that kind, clear sun Can't warm everyone Oh, today is a beautiful day But not for you All my life I've lived right By day and by night Now at last I am Rewarded I worked hard To get where I got As for you Apparently not Oh today is a beautiful day But not for you Not for you Just for me Everything's fine Far as I can see Oh the world is a beautiful place And it keeps getting better as for you, whatever you did Too bad for you, kid Oh, today is a beautiful day But not for you Oh, today is a beautiful day In every way Oh, today is a beautiful day But not for you George That was author George Saunders playing guitar and singing a duet with comedian and national treasure Stephen Colbert. Saunders looked a little out of place on the high-definition late-night talk show sitting on a couch usually occupied by Hollywood celebrities and other beautiful people. But in addition to his musical talents, he has the advantage of being one of Stephen Colbert's favorite authors. The poet Mary Carr calls Saunders, quote, the best short story writer in English, not one of, not arguably, but the best, end quote. High praise. He also happens to be a favorite of Mike Palindrome, arguably one of the best guests we have here on the History of Literature podcast, maybe inarguably, I'm not trying to insult any of our other illustrious visitors who have done so much to help us along and bring their news and their views to our listeners. Mike's been the most frequent 
<laughs> How about that? Not one of, not arguably, but the most frequent. Like many other great readers of contemporary fiction, he's captivated by George Saunders. He joins us today to tell us why. We'll also hear one of Saunders' stories, one of my personal favorites. That's coming up today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. George Saunders, the high-concept artist himself. I heard an improv show once. Does everyone out there like improv? Confess I'm not a huge fan of improvisational comedy. It always seems like it's more fun to do than to watch it being done. But maybe that's just me. I feel the same way about activities like poker and video games. and Plenty of people enjoy watching those. An improv when it's done really, really well, is pretty incredible. So maybe that's it. Maybe I can watch it and enjoy it at the highest levels. Highest levels only, but that seems odd. Because I also like failure. So, I shouldn't just enjoy the greatest successes, but the miserable, struggling improvers, those poor souls who get on stage and throw their heart into a sketch that falls flat on its face? Is there anything worse, anything fills you more with pathos than someone who is trying to be funny and struggling desperately and failing? Oh, that's kind of me. That's kind of my thing. That's the kind of thing I like. That's how I roll. Guys, people forget everything I just said. I guess I must love improv. This was one of those improv sets done at a high level by experts. That's what I wanted to tell you about today. And they were throwing out concepts for one another. And they set their scenes in the break room at an amusement park. And you could tell from their giggling as they broke their improv rule of not winking at the audience. They giggled a little bit at that. Ah, oh, the break room of an amusement park. Here we go. You could tell they thought this would be hilarious as the mascots come in and remove the heads from their costumes and smoke cigarettes and complain about the kids and how hot it is and talk about funny things they just witnessed in the park. And maybe they got caught scratching themselves in an inappropriate spot right in front of a big family or maybe a group of nuns or something, the possibilities were endless. And so these improvers got ready to launch into their big improv extravaganza. And all I could think was, this is George Saunders. This is what George Saunders does. He locates these improbable spots, the break room of an amusement park or something similar. But instead of those easy jokes... He mines the scenario for the less-than-obvious jokes, the really incisive comedic potential, the grace notes of the human condition. Grace notes played like some poor soul eager to hit the chimes of a xylophone. But finding instead of a mallet, he's holding a turkey leg and having to do his best anyway. I said Saunders mines the scenario, which was a word I chose with purpose. 
because his background was in mining. It's arguable that he's the best short story writer in America, or even writing in English, as Mary Carr says. And in spite of what she says, I do think it's arguable. There are so many good writers out there. I'm not willing to just grant him the crown, not with Queen Alice Monroe still out there, for God's sake. But maybe he's in the conversation. I will grant him, however, that he is almost certainly the best writer of American fiction to have attended and graduated from the Colorado School of Mining. An improbable start to an improbable career for a writer of improbable stories. Let's take a quick break and come back with Mike Palindrome and his thoughts on the great George Saunders. grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is the president of the Literature Supporters Club himself, Mike Palindrome. Mike, welcome back to the History of Literature. Hey, Jack. Good to be back. So, who is George Saunders? What do you know about his background? So, he, you know, he, he's a guy who appeals. He's a, he's obviously a uh, a prominent writer, um, but he, he's he's someone even beyond that appeals to many different sorts of people. Like mm. he. You know, he's a writer who's been on the Colbert Report and on David Letterman. It's right. like, I think it's it's eye-opening the way he has kind of connected with the popular culture in addition to the literary culture. Mm. So he, you think that's because he's of his humor or because he's edgy or what do you 
attribute that to? I think it's a combination of things that the the subject matter of his stories, mm-hmm. but uh, definitely is humor. I think you know humor can be a great equalizer. It can also kind of be a a vehicle for elitism and snobbiness. But I think the way he does it, it's to always kind of circle back to like the humanity, uh, you know, that, that humor is, you know, so he's got, I, he, he's got kind of a self deprecating humor. You, you get yeah. the sense that he's, he's not condescending. He's not shooting fish in a barrel, but he's as willing to laugh at himself as he is to make fun of other people. Yeah. I mean, he, he definitely has figured out how he wants to be, uh, viewed and largely he's been, pretty successful which is another reason why i admire him because he's kind of a cool writer but Mm -hmm. he's not he he, he's not full of himself because i think that's the problem with some writers who come off as like cool and you know a writer's writer so to speak and he's he's just a fascinating guy there's a there's an interview that was in the missouri review uh I'm, i'm way back when um, but I'm sure that you can find similar interviews today, but you know, he went to the Colorado school of mining right. as, as his undergraduate a, major a degree in geophysical engineering. Yeah. So you gotta, <laughs> you, you, you sort of, when you hear that, you just feel like he's definitely not privileged in a, in a literary sense, you know? Right. Um, yeah, he was, so another fact, just to orient people here, he was born in 1958 and he worked in a slaughterhouse. And then after he went to college, he worked on an oil platform in Sumatra. So he wasn't just sort of a an Englishy type who was dabbling in in uh, mining and, and geophysical engineering. He actually, that was going to be his career. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. And I think the, it's, he has a little bit of a Murakami type why he started to write. I think he was biking on his way to classes and he just decided he wanted to write fiction. Hmm. <laughs> on his bike it just came to him it's kind of like Murakami was on was at a baseball game in his late 20s and mm. somebody hit a home run and he decided that he wanted to go home and write a short story and then he did and then he did and the rest is history I mean he uh yeah so George Saunders um he's now very well connected uh he's a professor of creative writing at Syracuse now and mm. I think he mm-hmm. probably could have his pick a jobs having won i think he won uh a macarthur genius grant mm-hmm. and he's won a bunch of other things now, yeah but, so speaking yeah. of prizes i wanted to mention this so he he struggled for years and then his writing just took off he's won one prize after another and his novel lincoln in the bardo won the mm-hmm. man booker prize which right. I wasn't even aware that they were awarding it to authors from the United States. I guess they started that in 2014. But that's that's kind of the big literary prize in Great Britain. He was the second American to win it. And I don't know if you knew this, they did a Golden Booker Prize last year in 2018, where they mm. selected the best book from the past 50 years. So they took all the winners and they narrowed it down to five Uh, This was a celebration of the 50th anniversary of the Booker Prize. So Mm -hmm. a panel of judges narrowed the nominees to five, and they were uh, V.S. Naipaul in a Free State, Penelope Lively, Moon Tiger, Michael Andaje's The English Patient, Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall, and George Saunders's Lincoln and the Bardo. So if you look at the authors who didn't make it into that short list, 
you get a sense of what an elite group that is. Salman Rushdie, Iris Murdoch, uh, Penelope Fitzgerald, Ishiguru, uh, Ian McEwen, Kingsley Amos, uh, Julian Barnes, Kieran Desai, Nadine Gordimer, Margaret Atwood. I mean, it's like a a who's who of the 20th century and and the, the beginning of the 21st century. So for Saunders to be in that kind of rarefied atmosphere really shows that although we tend to to look less at contemporary literature here on the History of Literature podcast, he's mm-hmm. somebody who has a pretty good pedigree and a pretty good claim, I guess, that he'll be read for several decades at least. Yeah, I mean, his, you know, his collection, 10th of December, it's blurred by uh, Jonathan Franz and Zadie Smith, Thomas Pynchon, Jennifer Egan, and Dave Edgers. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> but which, by the way, um, I read a very, very funny piece on Brian Morton. You know, you know, the novelist, Brian yep. Morton. Yeah. Starting um, out, starting out in the evening. Is that his yeah, name? yeah. Yeah. He, he, he got a blurb uh, from Sal Bellow for his, mm. for Morton's novel. And, the the thing he had to do to get the blurb is a hilarious story. So I was thinking, just as an aside, we should do an episode on best blurbs. Mm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So Saunders, yeah, he's he's often called a nice guy, the nicest guy in the literary world. Uh, <laughs> he's just uh, people talk about him. He's kind of revered by his students and. Uh, who knows if any of that is is true or if it's just reputation, but it does seem to play into his writing, and it does make you sort of want to root for him a little bit when you're reading to know that he's at least, at least as of as of by all accounts, he's an extremely nice guy. So, how would you describe his writing? I mean, I think you know, it's surreal. It's uh, you, you get the sense that he's coming at literature from a wholly different perspective than a lot of people. I think a lot of people will be like, well, here's the setting, here's the plot, and here's the development. And with him, you kind of like get dropped into the middle of uh, something that's already fully developed. Mm. Um, And I find that with his stories, I'm constantly reminded of why I love to read, Mm. that it's not, like I don't have to wait for anything. It's just, it's always just delivering. Yeah. Um, and I think one thing is I've never read, I haven't read Lincoln and the Bardo. I haven't read a longer work of his. So I'm curious to see how I think of that. But I just, I love what I get out of each of his short stories. And, um, like I was going to read the beginning of, he has a short story called Pastoralia and Mm. it's about a guy who works in, um, a a caveman, uh, themed park (laughs) And he works with a partner who's kind of like a, you know, an angry coworker. Yeah. And she often speaks out of character. She uses English a lot. Um, but this is the beginning. Uh, I have to admit, I'm not feeling my best. Not that I'm doing so bad. Not that I really have anything to complain about. Not that I would actually verbally complain if I did have something to complain about. No, because I'm thinking positive, saying positive. I'm sitting back on my haunches waiting for people to poke their heads Although it's been 13 days since anyone poked in their head and Janet's speaking English to me more and more, which is partly why I feel so, you know, crummy. Geez, Janet says first thing in the morning, I'm so tired of roast goat, I could scream. What am I supposed to say to that? So they get, they have two slots. The big slot, a roast goat comes in every morning 
and in a little <laughs> slot, a book of matches. <laughs> and they're supposed to spend the day skinning the goat and cooking the goat. <laughs> and I just love the way Janet is like, geez, I'm so tired of roast goat. <laughs> so he, he has a lot of high concept short stories, I would say. Yeah. Um, and I guess I should get the big comparison out of the way here because uh, what he really reminded me of is Kurt Vonnegut. And mm, then yeah. uh, in doing some research, I found that Kurt Vonnegut was a huge influence on him and he, he kind of idolized him. Um, I've got a couple of quotes here, I guess. He said uh, he started reading him when he was working in Sumatra. And he said, reading Vonnegut, a sudden understanding of what genius might actually mean in our time swept over me. Here was an author courageous enough to concede all expected literary treasures for small potent drops of real truth. Here was an author who had been perhaps so deeply saddened by what he had seen that he had dropped in his sadness all falseness. Hmm. So... And in another quote, he calls him the great, urgent, passionate American writer of our century who offers us in the intensity of his gaze, the kindness of his vision, and the width of the possibilities he considers, a model of the kind of compassionate thinking that might yet save us from ourselves. And it seems like what drew Saunders to Vonnegut and, and what he kind of uh, uh, captures in his own writing is this pleasure in fiction, in storytelling, in inventing worlds and coming up with a, a, a twist, you know, something you might not expect, the setting that the people are in, that the characters are in, what they're dealing with, but then conveying something very human within that world. And, and a lot of it is this sadness. And uh, when you read the Amazon reviews of George Saunders, a lot of the, the readers who don't like it say, this is so bleak. It's it's kind of funny, but it's overwhelmingly sad and bleak. And I think that's just kind of Saunders's worldview that uh, we have reached a point in our society and our civilization where there really is no option other than to to feel the futility of it and to feel overwhelming sadness with maybe a, a few rays of hope here and there. You feel like the, the form of his writing and his style isn't, it is very much informed by what he thinks is the right way to depict today's world. Like mm -hmm. he's constantly ahead of the reader, ahead of us. Like he, he knows that, you know, yes, you want to critique consumerism, but it's kind of boring yeah. to be, to, to, to critique it. It's, it's just like, it's not, it, 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 it kills conversation. It's just not, you know, being right kills conversation. So how, how does he do it? Well, he, you know, is very much like writing in this realist style, like the roast goat. He has to, you have to skin the roast goat. And you get these descriptions that are on one hand comic, but on the other hand, very realistic. Like that story, Pastoralia, is set in the 80s. It was written much later, but it was set in the 80s. And they use fax machines. Mm. And he does this constant thing where he says, uh, and then management sent us a fax and the fax machine makes the sound that a fax makes. <laughs> and if anyone remembers fax machines, right. <laughs> it has a one of a kind sound. <laughs> and in fact, I've been trying to find a sound of a fax machine because I want to set my, my phone <laughs> ringtone on it. <laughs> so, but I think, I think that's the, I, mean, I definitely see Vonnegut 
Yeah. Uh, you know, but the, can we say that, you know, Saunders is maybe sadder and more maybe. of a realist? Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe it's because we've, things have gotten even more depressing since, since Vonnegut was in his heyday. There's, there's another yeah. quote uh, I have from Saunders where he, he wrote this fantastic essay about Bobby Ann Mason, the writer, mm-hmm. and it really shed a lot of light for me on Saunders and his project and, and how best to understand it. And I'll read a little bit here. He, he said, you could say, as critics have, that Mason is writing about a particular form of late 20th century American sadness, a moment during which something has fundamentally shifted in the American ethos. The way I would say it is that she is bearing witness to our descent into a new era of pure materialism. This, for me, is the essential energy of Mason's work, the sense of loving, vibrant human beings stymied by the systemic rebuttal of their vitality. And then she, he, uh, he goes on to say the stories are full of sorrow and loneliness and the human heart pushing back against these. And that seems to be something he's imported into his own work as well, that it's, it's the struggle. It's not just the relentless sadness and, and depressing aspects of capitalism run amok, but yeah. the, the way the protagonists fight back against that and, and the beauty of their struggle, even if sometimes it feels puny and, and almost hopeless. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, it, his vision to be able to see, to hold both in his head, um, you know, the sadness, but the, you know, to stay true almost to the, the project of short stories and literature to, to try to come up with something other than this, to weigh down the reader like in um the short story civil war land in bad decline which is another uh there's a civil war theme park and it's haunted by a family that was massacred mm-hmm. by these ghosts and at one point the narrator is being chased by um a crazy vietnam war vet i mean the setup is so insane but he's being chased by them and he f- finds some of the family members and he's trying to get away from this vet and the family members think that it's a little bit of a game, but they want also want to run with him. But he says that he could, since they were ghosts, he could see through them and see the trees because they were running through the trees, but he had to dodge the trees. Mm. And it's that, that kind of detail where you feel like you're being about to be killed. But here is this observation about ghosts and what would it be like to, transcend this world and to be that free and it's just a perfect way to kind of capture you know how do we escape from this world like what what would an escape look like you know yeah and And there's there's something we haven't talked about yet but i think it also plays into all of these stories is that his his style his writing style he's he uses a lot of slang he uses a lot of uh colloquialisms but they're it, it's not as if it's lazy. The effect is that you're drawn right into this uh, world of a storyteller and it's very playful and inventive and you feel uh, like you're sharing a joke with the the narrator or with the author. Uh, you know, this isn't a, a high style like a Henry James and it's not a, a plain style like a, a, a Graham Greene or an H.G. Wells or somebody who's setting forth these fantastical tales what do you notice in the style what stands out to you 
I mean, definitely, you, I agree with you, you know, the way he taps into slang and the vernacular, like, you know, when someone's doing poorly, he says, I'm like, well, soon you'll be eating the weenie, you know, <laughs> and, the, you know, it's also the, the ethos of offices and neighborhoods. I feel like he captures that yeah. perfectly. Yeah. He, he kind of captures the working class and mm-hmm. l- lower class really well. There's, there's a short story called Sea Oak which is about a very sad, poor family, white trashy family that the grandmother who's kind of holding the family together dies. And then she, her ghost comes back to haunt them and scold them for the lives they're leading. Mm-hmm. And they're at, at her funeral, uh, her two granddaughters are kind of arguing. And one of them says to the other, you know, I'm sure you, you, you swear at a grave. And it's like a line like that, you really have to like hear it, but mm. it's hilarious. The idea that <laughs> here's one trashy person scolding the other trashy person for cursing at a grave. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I I have a little bit of a mixed opinion about this because on the one hand, I agree with you. It seems like Saunders is very comfortable in that world of offices and work and he does not feel like a pretender when he's in there. He feels like it's something he knows and he's kind of bringing us the news from that world. On the other hand, I don't feel as if he's in any way a champion of the working class in terms of, I don't think he's writing for them and I don't think he's expecting them to read him. And when you read the Amazon reviews, that's kind of the number one complaint is people will say, does anyone really talk like this? Or this, this, I just couldn't get into this. I couldn't identify with any of these characters. And it seems like he's writing for, I don't know, a McSweeney's crowd or a, a literary critic crowd. He's, he's kind mm-hmm. of writing, um, he's sort of a writer's writer, even though his own background is this kind of working man background. I mean, it's, I, I don't know. I guess maybe the way I think of it is like, so few people few people read that if anyone's reading it and f- in reacting to it, that's great. I mean, so yeah. in Sea Oak, the, the main character is a male stripper, and he works at a, a male strip club called Joysticks. Mm-hmm. Um, obvious reference to, you know, <laughs> the 80s. But right. he, there's a section that begins, next, next day is Thursday, which means a visit from Ed Anders from the Board of Health. He's in charge of ensuring that our penises never show. Also, that we don't kiss anyone. And you read that and the rest of that story, and it 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 shows that being a male stripper is, you know, obviously not a, a career that people set for set out on becoming. But once you're in it, you know, there are varying levels of commitment. Some people want to do it well, other people are trying to get the hell out of it. And yeah, I mean, yeah. I, mean I don't I don't know. I mean, how do you write about you know, I think of Orwell, how do you write about the working class without being dogmatic? Mm-hmm. It's it's a tricky one. And the fact that, I guess part of me feels like the fact that he even attempts to write about class r- really makes him stand out because so few people even try that. Right. You know, today, you know. The thing that really helped me understand him better was what he said. Again, this is from that essay on Bobby and Mason. He said, the best writers writers like Mason, steer not by convention or a desire to teach us something or export some worldview, 
but by this inner sense of preference in a spirit of exploration, asking through the enactment of a highly personal artistic method, what is it, after all, that I believe? I think he's basically saying when he sits down to write, he can't have in mind a question like, who am I writing for? Is Am I reaching a broad enough audience? Uh, should I be tailoring this to, you know, to try to reach this or that kind of people? Should I be teaching somebody something about someone? Anything like that. He's basically just sitting down as an artist and following mm -hmm. his artistic instincts. I guess, you know, Harkin, going back to the Amazon critique reviews, um, one thing I will say, though, is that you get into a different mindset when you read them. You're you're not sitting down and like sinking into, you know, a narrative by Ishiguro that just takes you away. Mm -hmm. You know, you you read Saunders and you are laughing out loud. You have a grin on your face uh, for the duration of the short story. But you know, I don't want to say it's a little bit of the same thing because you can say that about a lot of short story writers, but he. I, I I didn't read his book straight through each one. Yeah, I probably savored each one because I just found them to be so wonderful. Um, yeah, but it's a different kind of writing. I mean, I think a lot of people they they expect to sink into a book. I see some of the Amazon reviews because I sometimes I'll read a review of like the Magic Mountain, for instance. <laughs> you know, just to see like, well, what do people or like, you know, something I love like Lolita, like. And uh, it, some of the some of the biggest criticisms is literally like I could put the book down. Yeah, that's basically like their problem with the book. And yeah. I was thinking like that's why I love certain writers because they're so intense that I can put it down. Right. So <laughs> there's that. Right. Let Let's do this. I have a surprise question for you. Surprise mm -hmm. bonus question. Okay. Imagine you're in a debate for your life. Your assigned position is George Saunders is a better writer than blank. And you're going to need to make the case for George Saunders over a particular writer. So, uh, and your life is on the line. Mm. So tell me how you would feel and how you would make the case if the author was one of the following. And I'm going to plug in some authors here. Okay. Okay. Jhumpa Lahiri. You feel good about your chances there? Yes. Yeah? <laughs> what would you say? More more humor? How would you what what are you giving the nod to with Saunders over Jhumpa Lahiri? I think the the humor is more unique. Um the this kind of social relevance is mm. is stronger. Um You mean like the broader themes like end of capitalism and that kind of thing yeah that there's the, the the use of irony and the use of um people kind of running in the, the, where where what kind of future we're, we're headed into and hmm. i i find that saunders is almost predictive i think it's fascinating to know 25 years from now how he'll be read yeah um yeah i wonder about that because on the one hand i think the language might dry up a little bit for him mm -hmm. you know we're going to move on with language and and some of it might not feel as fresh as it does when it comes out in the in the pages of the new yorker or, or you know wherever you encounter it right but on the other hand i agree people are probably going to look back and 
and find that he was kind of a a fortune teller. Yeah, I mean, I think you know we're already seeing that where we basically moved away from TV sitcoms to other forms of entertainment and other forms of like you know passing just passing the time. What it means to pass the time, right? So, but I and the other thing is with Lahiri, um, she's she's almost like this perfect elegant writer mm-hmm. and they're they're actually ironically a lot of perfect elegant writers <laughs> i mean i hate to say that you're gonna count and, that against her <laughs> sort of like <laughs> i mean you read henry james and uh, i think yeah. her her big apostle was uh gogol right yeah but, yeah and uh, know, there's a lot of edith wharton in there yeah. it's sort of uh a lot of people i think would say though that Saunders is, you know, as as entertaining as he is, and as as conceptually inventive as he is, Jump Lahiri is is chronicling a particular class, a particular ethnic group, and and she's she's really delineating something that's very important to give voice to. Yeah, no, I th- I mean, I think you know, it's it, she's a great writer, and it, it's almost like you know. Yeah, this is a battle of heavyweights. I mean, we're you know we're really trying <laughs> right. to. People hate Tom Thomas Mann or Jonathan Franz, and people hate people with David Foster Wallace. So you can always find some way to critique uh, a favorite writer. Yep. So and there are people who object to this kind of question altogether. And <laughs> I, I, I think you know it's one of those things. It's just like sure, I agree. You can't really, uh, you know, these you, you're, we're not judging these like we're talking about a Hall yeah. of Fame case or something. But I think it it helps to uh, get our conversation rolling and get us thinking about these authors and what's good about them and and uh, yeah. what we like about them. So let me move on to number two. You're still in the debate for your life. Uh, now uh-huh. they say uh, Raymond Carver. How do you feel about your chances? Uh, all right. So this one, I... I, I'm just too big a Carver fan. Yeah, I, I don't think I can think straight. Um, <laughs> so you'd want to pass. You'd you'd want to. Yeah, I mean, okay. I think the thing with the the thing with humor and the, you know one of the you know for this episode I was thinking of like what doesn't Saunders do for me, and I think it's um, the way I think of it is the his echo after you finish a short short story. Mm-hmm. It isn't as the loud as someone like Carver. Mm-hmm. It isn't as loud as someone like Alice Monroe. I mean, an Alice Monroe story when it ends, yeah, you you're not just gonna like pop up and cook dinner. I right. mean, <laughs> actually, she was you the know. next on my list. Yeah, um, so. it's... And, and that could just be a preference of mine of of what I want out of fiction because mm-hmm. um, I r- would rather struggle with a, a really really tragic story than to be entertained and amused and think about the world today. Yeah. What's wrong with the world today, you know? Right. And it's a bit more of an intellectual engagement than, uh, I mean, Raymond Carver, Alice Monroe, they're, they make you feel things, you know, even you can't even always express what exactly it is you feel. You feel it in your spine or the, the hair on the back of your arm stands up or you, you you put the book down and you're still sort of shivering from the experience. Yeah. It's a different experience. Okay. 
Next one on the list, Donald Barthelme. You know, I, I take my chances on yeah. proving that Saunders is better than Barthelme. I think they're, one thing is they're so similar. They are. And it's almost like they were kind of brothers. Mm. They're, they're, yeah. they're, you know, one's a little weirder sometimes, one's a little, you know, uh, more in your face. And yep. Barthelme, I will say, just doesn't use dialogue as much as Saunders. And mm. that's one mm-hmm. thing I love about Saunders is there's a rhythm to his fiction that Barthelme doesn't have at all. You know, Barthelme, it's really more about the, uh, it, it often feels like an intellectual exercise, Barthelme. Right. You have to just figure it out. I have a fifth one on here. Uh-huh. Jay McInerney. <laughs> <laughs> I was worried that you would feel like you couldn't make the case for any of the four above, so I, I gave you one that you could redeem yourself with. Uh... I, I'm probably one of the few people in America that's read Bright Lights, Big City twice. <laughs> so I did it 20 years apart to see how it held up, and I, I actually I had I, I, I had a grand time reading it during lunch breaks. I was I was carrying it around. You know, he was supposed to be bigger than Fitzgerald. I don't know if people know that when he started publishing in his early 20s, they, they, they said, here is somebody who is better than Fitzgerald. Mm. <laughs> I mean, talk about hype. Um, and it didn't turn out that way. No, yeah. it didn't. Um... He, wrote, he wrote three books about <laughs> the same couple. Um, and the first book, Brightness Falls, really didn't get any good reviews. I mean, talk about... A yeah. strange move. Like, then you go back to that well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> okay. So you, when we talked about doing George Saunders and we talked about doing the collection 10th of December and yeah. you suggested we do uh, Escape from Spiderhead. And actually that wasn't my favorite in the collection. Can you guess which two stories I liked the best? I just, I'm so surprised that you didn't love Escape from Spider-Man. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know. It, was it the Semplica Diaries? No. I liked... Oh, oh Sticks. I liked Sticks. Yeah. And I liked Puppy. So let's, uh, <laughs> let's take a quick break, and I'm going to read Sticks. It's, it's quite short, and then we'll come back and we'll talk about it. Right, sounds good. Sticks. Every year, Thanksgiving night, we flocked out behind Dad as he dragged the Santa suit to the road and draped it over a kind of crucifix he'd built out of a metal pole in the yard. Super Bowl week, the pole was dressed in a jersey and Rod's helmet, and Rod had to clear it with Dad if he wanted to take the helmet off. On Fourth of July, the pole was Uncle Sam, on Veterans Day, a soldier, on Halloween, a ghost. The pole was Dad's one concession to glee. We were allowed a single Crayola from the box at a time. One Christmas Eve, he shrieked at Kimmy for wasting an apple slice. He hovered over us as we poured ketchup, saying, Good enough, good enough, good enough. Birthday parties consisted of cupcakes, no ice cream. The first time I brought a date over, she said, What's with your dad in that pole? And I sat there blinking. 
We left home, married, had children of our own, found the seeds of meanness blooming also within us. Dad began dressing the pole with more complexity and less discernible logic. He draped some kind of fur over it on Groundhog Day and lugged out a floodlight to ensure a shadow. When an earthquake struck Chile, he laid the pole on its side and spray-painted a rift in the earth. Mom died, and he dressed the pole as death and hung from the crossbar photos of Mom as a baby. We'd stop by and find odd talismans from his youth arranged around the base, army medals, theater tickets, old sweatshirts, tubes of Mom's makeup. One autumn, he painted the pole bright yellow. He covered it with cotton swabs that winter for warmth and provided offspring by hammering in six crossed sticks around the yard. He ran lengths of string between the pole and the sticks and taped to the string letters of apology, admissions of error, pleas for understanding, all written in a frantic hand on index cards. He painted a sign saying, Love, and hung it from the pole, and another that said, Forgive? And then he died in the hall with the radio on, and we sold the house to a young couple who yanked out the pole and left it by the road on garbage day. Okay, we're back. Mike, what did you think of Sticks? You know, I, I actually, when I was reading it in the collection, I I didn't, like, I liked it okay, but mm-hmm. I actually reread it for my daughter over brunch one day, and I thought it was incredible. Mm. I, and I guess that's one of the things about short fiction is, yeah, if you're not in the mood, you can really miss it. Yeah. Um, you can, and I think that's the thing with Amy Hempel. I'm, I'm actually rereading some of Amy Hempel's short stories and realizing what I missed the first time around. It's just kind of shocking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I, in, in sticks, I, I, I love the, what he does with this, with the stick, with this pole. Yeah. It <laughs> I mean, felt somehow it, I mean, sticks is a very Donald Barthelme kind of story, but, um, they, yeah. Sticks and Puppy, they felt a little more grown up to me, and I'm mm-hmm. not sure why that is. If it's, I sort of have a, a bias against sci-fi fantasy type scenarios or or what it is, but it, they, yeah, they felt. I felt like I was getting more out of those stories. I mean, there in Sticks, there there are great lines like, "The pole was Dad's one concession to glee," <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean that's just a perfect line in the in the middle of all this kind of nonsense about taking care of this pole. Yeah. Um and I guess I felt like some of the other stories there's a little bit of you know Saunders wants to have some meaning attached to the stories but it can feel a little bit tacked on sometimes. 
that it's not coming out of the story itself, but it's maybe a yeah a, a kind of passage of heightened rhetoric that the narrator inserts. And I felt a little sometimes like I was being pulled by the nose and forced to look at the the big important message of the story. I hear you, but I don't know. Some, like in Escape from Spiderhead, when Heather dies and the the tester Abnesty goes. You did terrific overall. We all did terrific. Heather especially did terrific. I honor her. Mm. I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I just think, he, you know, someone's just bashed their head against the table to death. And right. that line, Heather especially did terrific. And right. then he, he says, Jeff, stop crying. Contrary to what you might think, there's not much data in crying. Use your words. Don't make this in vain. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's close with this. A critic of the in the writing in the Wall Street Journal said, quote, it's no exaggeration to say that short story master George Saunders helped change the trajectory of American fiction. End quote. Do you agree with that assessment? And if so, how do you think he changed the trajectory of American fiction? I think he probably uh inspired a lot of of writers mm. to kind of look in the mirror and say, um, what's your subject matter? Cause it's you, like you were saying, it's very high concept. It's, and I think with any kind of high concept writer, um, you think of, you know, the process of choosing your next book to read and why you pick one. And yeah. more and more today, I think people, when I ask uh, fellow readers, like, what are you going to read? They say, well, I'm going to read this. And then they, they dive right into the subject matter mm -hmm. rather right. than saying like this, this is Jean Lahiri's latest, Yeah, which is, which is the way, you know, people, it was kind of like 50, 50 in the past. Like people would actually be very loyal. Like this is Philip Roth's next book. Mm -hmm. you know, but now people would be like, oh, this is a World War II story resistance with a, with a blind man as the, the, the main character. And then you, you might read uh, someone like Raymond Carver, but then when he has so many people who follow him, and yeah. then, you know, can you really hand a book to someone and say, oh, this is about a group of working class people in the Pacific Northwest, and they maybe struggle with alcoholism and with their relationships, you know, and people, it, you can feel them thinking, well... I guess I've already read a couple books like that. Yeah. What's new about that? But when you read the Saunders, you think, oh, he's come up with an idea here that is going to sustain this. This is not an idea that I've ever seen in fiction before. And right. so, you know, 20 years from now, maybe people will get tired of that as people follow Saunders. But if we're talking about how he's changed the trajectory of American fiction, that might be how, that it's introducing a kind of a, a Vonnegut-like imagination back into literary fiction yeah and he, i mean i guess back to the class thing he's he's saying like here are the types of americans i know like which types do you know mm. uh he, and here's the type of america i hate like you know where do you fit in i mean he's asking these kind of questions that you know like a writer like deborah eisenberg i love her short stories but it, it does feel like a lot of those characters in her stories are just incredibly eccentric mm -hmm. and and therein ends the that world that world is right. very you know you, it'll you be never, particular to that yeah like person. 
Yeah. Like you're not going beyond like Times Square. What are the people like in Times Square? And, and with Saunders stories, even if they're set in sci-fi, you get the sense like, well, I maybe I know somebody like this. Right. Right. Yeah. You recognize yourself in them. They're, his yeah. his characters are kind of schlumpy and they're kind of woebegone yeah. and and they feel like if you've ever worked any kind of job you'll yeah. recognize a lot of the details of the jobs that these people are working at, even if the jobs themselves are kind of crazy. Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of instances in his fiction where he says, like, is this the life I envision for myself? My God, no. I wanted, and I love this, he says, I wanted to be a high jumper. <laughs> that's that's in Civil War Land and Bad Decline. And I I think, that, you know, that's really, that's really Saunders. Like, he... Right. He had a dream of, you know, he got married early, had had two kids. He had a dream of what he was going to do in his life that wasn't writing fiction, but to build a life. Yeah. You, you, know? and, you could also imagine, yeah. though, a story that he would write about professional high jumpers that also <laughs> explores like the, the oddities <laughs> and the weirdnesses of that particular profession as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, let's leave things there. Mike? As always, thanks for joining me on the History of Literature. Thanks, Jack. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, we will return to the world of philosophy. If all goes according to plan, and why wouldn't it? I have no reason to think it will not, but I guess one never knows. You can find us at historyofliterature.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe if you haven't already, and spread the word. We're trying to reach as many poor souls as we can on our mission to unite the world in our small, local, sprawling way. I'm Jack Wilson. Always looking to sprawl a little. Jack Wilson, the sprawler, I guess. <laughs> I'm, J- <laughs> I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.